0: Well, I was sharing with the uh, first uh, during the first part of the prayer service at 9:30 about a little bit about this eighth day of Sukkot. You know, Sukkot is the seventh feast that lasts seven days. It takes place in the seventh month, and we know that seven is the number of completion, the number of completion in time. When you get to seven, it's like yeah, everything's just right. It's perfection. But then in the Torah, it says then on the eighth day, you're to have another assembly and give some instructions about it, but it doesn't tell us why. Well, we know that eight is the number of new life. And uh, we tend to think that Yeshua rose on the first day of the week, and that is what the gospels say. But if you think about the seven days of the last week of his life, you could say he was raised on the eighth day. Because eight always starts a new cycle, something brand new. New life, like eight souls on the ark. It started a whole new thing. So Simchat Torah, this eighth day, instead of looking back the way Sukkot does on the fruitfulness, the protection, the provision of God, the victory, the celebration of victory in our lives, this day looks forward. It looks forward to that After the seventh millennium, the 7,000 years of that new heavens and new earth, something brand new. And uh, I think we need to have a focus on this. Always have it in our minds that this world's passing away and there's a new one coming. I was sharing with, uh, I might as well share it with you all too if you came in later. We tend to think of what is familiar as being normal. And all I have to say is that to that is, don't. This world may be very familiar, but it is not normal, Far from it. If you want to know what a normal world is, you go back to the first couple chapters of Genesis, and you look at Adam and Eve's pure and intimate walk with God and sinlessness and fruitfulness and joy. That is normal. That's the world God created. But when Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, God put a curse on the world. He did not curse Adam and did not curse Eve. Don't ever think that. He cursed the world. And that's when pain and crying and death and mourning and all these things came into existence. But God is a person who does tikkun, tikkun olam, repair of the world. And in these last two chapters of Revelation, we see the world return to normal once again. And you may think your life is normal. It may be typical. It may be familiar. But there's only one normal life that was ever lived in history, and that was the life of Yeshua. That's what normal life looks like. Now, that's something to wrap your head around. So, don't ever settle for familiar. Strive for normal. Strive for normal. Because normal means perfect. And uh, and that's what God has in store for us. So, what I'd like you to do is uh, turn to Revelation 21. And I, I'm going to revisit Nehemiah. And I promise we will get back to Nehemiah. I plan to next week. We have two chapters left in Nehemiah to get to. So just to remind us that we are going to be studying Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 8, verses 17 and 18, it says, The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made Sukkot, booths, and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day. And there was great, what? Rejoicing. This is the season of our joy. And Sukkot is a time where we rejoice. We're commanded to rejoice. And it says, he read from the book of the Torah of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day... Oh, we don't have a screen, do we? All right. Ignore the man behind me. He's not there. But uh, And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So... They celebrated Shemini Atzeret. Also, at this time, we have what's called Simcha Torah. Simcha is to rejoice, to be happy. Simchat Torah means the rejoicing of the Torah. And uh, in synagogues around the world, on uh, one day this week, it might be today or tomorrow—I forget—I should know that—but they will get the Torah scrolls out and they'll go dancing and spinning around the synagogue if the weather allows and and um, they'll, they'll march up to the front and they'll circle the bima and they'll get the Torah out and they're singing and dancing and shouting and clapping and rejoicing over God's word. And uh, it's, it's quite something to see. So, here we are, Revelation 21. And thank you to the invisible man who fixed the screen. I always love people who watch my back. All right. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. There is so much packed into that short verse that we're going to camp out here. We're going to spend more time on these first half dozen verses than we will on the rest of 21 and 22. But this is very important to lay some groundwork. It says there was a new heaven and a new earth, but all we see described is the new earth. That's what we see described. You know why? Because heaven and earth have come together. Heaven has invaded earth, and things have gone back to normal. We have to understand something. In the garden, before sin came and brought division and death, the physical realm, okay, the physical realm that we sense with our five senses and the spiritual realm which your five senses are worthless for detecting they were one and they were both obvious you didn't you would never ask the question well is that physical or is that spiritual you sense them both equally as well now we do have spiritual senses but they're just not very well developed Because being fallen people, we are very sensitive physically, but not so sensitive spiritually. In this world, we can see and walk and maneuver without banging into things. But in the spiritual realm, we walk by faith, not by sight. How good is your faith? Do you ever misstep because you have doubts about God, because you have fear? You develop your spiritual sense of faith. Discernment. How many times you'd make good friends with someone who was a wolf? They were dangerous to be close to, but you didn't discern it. You saw the smile, you saw the charm, but charm is deceitful, Proverbs tells us. And because your your spiritual sense of discernment was not very sharp, you got entangled with someone who is dangerous to you. You need to develop that sense of discernment we can go on and on about the spiritual senses, how they need to be developed and matured. But the day is coming when the physical and the spiritual completely invade one another. They completely come together. And you will be able to physically engage with the spiritual and spiritually appreciate and engage with the physical. There will no longer be this distinction between the two. So this is what's happening here. Heaven invades earth. The two come back together. You know what that's called? It's called a marriage. You know when a man and a woman become one flesh? Well, there's a marriage day coming, a wedding day coming, when the physical and the spiritual become one. And one of the things that really stands out about this, it says that there is no longer any sea. Why is that important? Well, let's take a look here. The sea is made of water. And uh, let's start with this. This word at the top of the screen is the word Shemaim. That first letter on the right is the shin, and it makes a sh sound, kind of like fire, kind of looks like fire, doesn't it? It looks like flames coming up. But the next three letters are the word mayim, which is water. And together, this is shamayim, and shamayim is the word for heaven. Or heavens, because a word that ends in im is plural. So this is why they'll sometimes talk about the waters or the water, translated either way, or heaven or the heavens, translated either way. So Shemaim is made of fire and water. And we've talked many times in the past about the many times in Scripture you see fire and water dwelling together in peace. And whenever that happens, you know God is on the scene. Whenever you see fire and water... There, without the fire evaporating the water or the water dousing the fire, but they're dwelling together in peace. God is present. In fact, you go back earlier in Revelation, it describes God's throne room. And it says his throne was on a sea of glass. It doesn't mean it was made of glass, it means it was so still, there was nothing disturbing the surface. Everything was in perfect balance. And then it said lightning was shooting through the water. Well, that's fire it's all good we're dwelling in peace we meet Yeshua in uh, the, the uh, first chapter of Revelation and uh, when John sees Yeshua or his angel at least it says that his eyes were like flames of fire but when he spoke it was the voice of many waters how can you have fire in your eyes and the sound of waters from your mouth <laughs> There you go. There, God's showing up. It's perfect balance. But now look at this next word, maim. You take these three letters right here at the end of Shemaim, and there they are, and that's the word for water. Maim is water. Um, There are some Messianic fellowships called maimchaim, which means living waters. Now, if you remember... Back in the first chapter of Genesis, on the second day of creation, it says that God separated the waters below from the waters above. Now get that. He didn't separate the waters above from the waters below. The waters below came from the waters above. He made this firmament that separated the waters below from the waters above. And he does not call that day good. You go check it. The second day of creation, Monday, he did not call good. Okay? But on the third day, he says it is good two times. Why doesn't he call the second day good? I mean, everything God did was good, but he just doesn't state it. Because what he did there was to be very temporary. Because the waters below belong with the waters above. And that's why there are no seas here. They go back to where they belong. I want you to think of water in a brand new way. And as you go through the week, every time you engage with water, whether it's washing your hands, taking a drink, getting it rained on, or taking a shower, whatever it is, putting ice in a, in a cold drink, whenever you engage with water, I want you to remi- remember these words. It is spirituality tangible, or tangible spirituality. It is the spirit made tangible. Think of it that way. Because everything about water is bizarre. Now, we're so used to water, we don't think about it. But everything about water is very bizarre. This is why we're the blue planet, because we have so much water here. And it's almost like when God created the firmament there on the second day... He separated the waters below from the waters above. He says, I'm going to make man live in this firmament between the waters below and the waters above. It's almost like we're surrounded by the spiritual. And I'm creating a break in the spiritual for man to live in the physical. But he's surrounded by the spiritual. And someday these waters here are going to go back up to where they belong. I mean, look at this. The word bayim. The first letter here is a mim. And the last letter is also a mem. Now they look different because mem is one of those letters that change. There are five letters in the Hebrew alphabet that change shape when they appear at the end of a word, but it's the same letter. Just like water is so changeable. I mean you can, you can inhale it in water vapor, is water vapor in the air right now. Water, vapor, steam, you can breathe it in. You can drink it. You can drown in it. You need to learn how to swim. The spiritual is a place you can drown. You need to know how to engage it in a healthy way. It's also something you can walk on. Now, Yeshua can walk on it without it being frozen, but I have to wait for it to freeze for I can walk on water. But water is very bizarre. Think about it. What else does this? And what is the, what is the, uh, the chemical... I don't know as you call it the formula or the compound for water. It's H two O. There's a molecule of hydrogen, there's a molecule of oxygen, and another molecule of hydrogen. Just like there's a mem and a yud and a mem. You can't make this up. Remember, the Hebrew letters are the building blocks of creation, and God by speaking. The words forth from his mouth, the creation came into being. If he ever stopped to take a breath, it would all just collapse. That's his sustaining utterance. He's continued to sing forth the creation. And uh, it's quite a, a, an astounding thing. So, we see in new heavens, he's made a new heavens and new earth, but all we see is the earth, because heaven has invaded earth. There are no more seas. Why? Because the water has gone back to where it belongs. Now, there's still water here. We're going to see a stream flowing from God's throne later. And he invites everybody to come to drink from the living water. He gives it freely. There's water, but you don't have most of the planet underwater and unusable. And then he says in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Here's another spiritual physical thing. Is a city physical or is it spiritual? In this chapter, the answer to all my questions is yes. He sees a city, the New Jerusalem, but it is called the bride. It's the bride of Messiah. The bride of Messiah is a city. It's made up of people. And it's coming down from heaven from God. Remember when God created Eve? He took a side from Adam, not a rib, a side. So ladies, you are a lot more expensive than what translations make you out to be. It cost Adam one entire side. And from that side, God formed a bride. And it says, he brought her to the man. The bride comes to the man, and even in wedding ceremonies a day, I don't know of any wedding ceremonies where the man comes to the bride. He's here waiting for her to arrive, and that's a reflection of that truth found there in the opening chapters of Genesis. And so here we see the bride descending. But the bride's described as a city. But aren't we made from living stones? I want to skip ahead to a passage. Uh, yeah, I think I've got it here. Yes, 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. And coming to him, remember, a woman comes to him. Coming to him as a living stone, Yeshua is a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as spiritual stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We're all living stones. And here we are, a collection of them making one little part of the New Jerusalem. The problem with living stones is they move around too much. But when we finally come to rest in the world to come, the whole city moves together as one. A house, a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Messiah. That's amazing. So here we see this spiritual house descending from, from heaven to the earth. Now, I'm going to tell you something right up front. You have four introductory verses here in this chapter. And then from verse 5 on down to about uh, pretty much to verse 21, we're looking at the bride, the new Jerusalem. But from verse 22 on down to chapter 22, verse 7, it's talking about the nations, Because we have two groups of people in view in this chapter. You've got the bride. These are the believers. These are the people who decide in this life, on this earth now, I'm going to live for my Messiah because he's made a promise. He's coming back for me. He said he loved me. He died for me. And I believe that. And I'm going to live life here completely differently. I'm going to live life here in faith in him that what he said is true. And there's a day coming we will be one. I'm going to be a wise virgin. One of the five wise ones has their oil and their lamps and trimmed and lit and ready for him to come. I am kadosh. I am betrothed. I'm set apart. Holy to him. I'm not going to say yes to any other offers from the world to follow it. I'm following him. I don't see him yet. But I believe his word. I'm waiting for him. I'm being to be found ready and waiting when he comes. But then this next section, the, the rest of this passage is about the nations, the people who are not part of the bride, like the five foolish virgins who weren't watching, who weren't prepared, who didn't invest in what they, uh, what they were told was coming. So we want to keep these two groups distinct and understand what happens to both. All right, so let's go on to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice uh, this is kol gadol in Hebrew, kol gadol. The first place you find kol gadol in the Bible, guess where? A loud voice, a great big voice. Mount Sinai, when God gives his Torah. That's the first place you find that. And now we hear it again. From the throne a loud voice from the throne saying behold the tabernacle of god is among men and he will tabernacle among them and they shall be his people and god himself will be among them this is talk that this is jubilee talk you know in chapter in leviticus chapter 25 and 27 it's all about the jubilee you find the word jubilee 20 times in those two chapters But in the chapter in between, chapter 26, you don't see the word jubilee mentioned. But you find this passage. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. This finds ultimate fulfillment when God and his bride become one. When the new Jerusalem comes from heaven to earth, and heaven and earth rest in peace together. Oh, what a day that's going to be. And it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning. Or crying or pain. The former things have passed away. In 1 Corinthians 15, I love this chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 25 and 26 says, For he, Yeshua, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is what? Death. It doesn't say dying. This goes further than dying. Because you can bring an end to dying, so have a lot of dead people. Death itself will be abolished, there will be no dead people. Death means separation from God and separation from God will no longer exist, period. Now that's amazing. Death itself will be abolished. So here are the things that will be done away with. Death, mourning, crying, pain, the former, former things. These are things that you find occurring when Adam and Eve sinned and were evicted from the garden. They all began there. Remember, Yeshua's purpose in coming was to completely undo all the damage that was done by Adam and Eve in the garden as if they had never sinned. To restore it all back. That is his task. To completely undo the works of the enemy that he started in the garden when he lied and deceived Adam and Eve. That is Yeshua's goal. Completely restore, completely undo everything the enemy did, undo all the damage Adam and Eve did, and put it all back right. And maybe even better. Think of Adam again. I mean, Adam was perfect, he's a little lonely. He needed a helpmate, couldn't find one. So what did God do? He brought division, took one half of Adam away from the other half. How long were they separate? How long were these two halves separate, these two things that belonged together? I don't know. But God did a work in one half of Adam. They healed up the other half. But what happened? Then when he brought them back together, he looked face to face with his bride Eve. And they became one flesh again. So why bother separating them if you're going to just put them back together? Because somehow, the second unity was a whole lot better than the first unity. It was a huge improvement. So what has God done? He's taken his creation. He brought separation, brought death into it. He allowed it to come in. He knew what Adam and Eve would do. He knew what the serpent would say. He knew how it all come out. From the very beginning, he knew the end. But out of this long period of 6,000, 7,000 years, God is forming a bride for his son, and then he's going to bring them back together. And when he brings them back together, it's going to be better than if that separation had never taken place. That's the major theme of Scripture. That's how our God works. Every challenge and everything we see is a failure or a sin or a problem is simply building material for God. And where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Just much more abounds, super abounds. So, the former things are going to be done away with. In Isaiah, I love this passage, 25, 6 to 9, says, Adonai of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with morrow and refined aged wine. It'll be red meat night that night, huh? And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples. I love that. Swallow up the covering that's over all peoples. I remember I mentioned a couple weeks ago how there seems to be this fog of deception in the world today. Everybody's just stumbling around this world. They've abandoned the rock of the scriptures The light that it brings, they don't know what's right, what's wrong, what's pleasing to God, what's displeasing. In fact, they're so confused they don't even care. And there's just this fog of deception everywhere. In the news, in people's hearts, it's just like people don't know which ends up. There's a covering over the people, and God's going to swallow it up. Even the veil which is stretched over all nations, he will swallow up death for all time. Death will become obsolete, and the Lord Adonai will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for Adonai has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is Adonai for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his Yeshua. The word for salvation is Yeshua. That's the word used here. be glad to salvation in his Yeshua. Salvation is a person. All right, let's move on. Verse five, and he said, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Now that's one you can take and run with. He makes all things new, not some things. It doesn't say he makes all new things. He makes all things new. Think of people you've loved and have lost. They'll be back brand new. And I'm going to stretch this. You might think of am a heretic. That's all right. I'm getting used to the pitchforks and, and torches people are always <laughs> bringing my way. How about that pet? I mean, that really was a companion, loved you, and you loved it, and it was just, it it was an enhancement to your life. Is that part of all things? I don't think I can out-imagine God. I really don't, and I have a very good imagination. How about that, maybe a childhood home, or that favorite vacation spot that they tore down to make a parking lot? Somehow, there's going to be plenty of room in the new earth for you to find that there again. Because if it was something good, something that brought joy to you, somehow I have to believe it's eternal. I just don't think anything good is ever wasted. I think every joy, everything that brings real genuine happiness is stored up by God. And he's, he's taking good care of it. He's going to bring it back. He's going to make all things new. Now the former things, the death and mourning and all that, that that's, that's going bye-bye. That wasn't part of the original creation, and so you're not going to find that in the new one. But all the good things, I just have to believe he's, he's got them in storage, and he's going to bring them back. I make all things new. And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's finished. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. Uh, in Hebrew, we'd say, I am the Aleph and I'm the Tav. I'm the first and the last. I have it all figured out from beginning to end and everything in between. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. You know, when I read that, you know who I think of? I think of that rich man in Luke 16. And he sees poor beat up Lazarus, who's now in the bosom of Abraham, and says, send a drop of water to cool my tongue. And that was beyond Lazarus' power to do, not beyond God's. And he talks about this living water more uh, in the next chapter. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, which all of us were, maybe still are, and the unfaithful, which all of us were, and I still am struggling to be faithful all the time, the abominable, which probably all of us were, have done abominable things, but hopefully are not anymore, but it's something you're still conquering. Murderers, and I haven't murdered anybody yet, at least not physically, but I've murdered people with my tongue. I've destroyed their character. I'm, I'm incredibly ashamed of the things I've said that would destroy someone's character and reputation. We've probably all done that before. In fact, in Leviticus 19, it says, do not stand in your neighbor's blood, which is a very strange way of of putting it. But the rabbis say, when you do something to embarrass someone else and and it makes the blood run to their face, makes them flush, makes them turn red, they say that's a form of murder there and you have shed blood. Ever since I came to that understanding, I've done my best. I mean, I joke with my buddies and so on, but I try never, ever to embarrass anyone. I really work at that. So if I've slipped up and goofed embarrassed you, please forgive me. I'm really trying not to be a murderer, but uh, sometimes I just can't help myself. But, uh, but have you embarrassed people? That's a form of murder. And then immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, liars... We think about it, we've all been involved to some degree or other mentally or even physically in these things. It says, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's get something straight, folks. We all go through the fire. We all go through the fire. When John was at, uh, at the River Jordan, he says, I immerse you, I wash you in water. For well, the one who comes after me will immerse you in fire and the Holy Spirit. We, um, we know that all of our works go through the fire and whatever you've done that's a surface hay, wood, and stubble, it just, poof, it's like it never existed, like you never put any energy into it. It's gone. There's nothing to show for it. But the silver, the gold, the precious stones, the deep things, the permanent things, they go through the fire and come out the other side Better. They're refined and purified. See, there are two things that purify. Water and fire. You purify your body with water because your body is mostly water and it doesn't endure fire very well. But your soul is made of different stuff. Your soul was breathed into you by God. It's spiritual. It is fire because our God's a consuming fire. And wherever you, you've heard me say this so many times, everywhere you see fire in the Bible, it's God's holy presence. Your soul goes through the fire. Every one of us do. And here's what the fire of hell feels like. Would you've mistreated someone else? Would you've mistreated your spouse? When you maybe stole something from the office where you work and then you feel that guilt building up in there and you just can't sleep at night, you feel horrible about what you did, you feel that shame, that is what spiritual fire feels like. And what's its purpose? Just to torture you? No. It's there to prompt you to make it right to go ask forgiveness from that person that you wronged, to return and restore what you may have stolen, to repair the hurts that you've, that you've committed. But can you imagine someone who their entire life has misused their tongue to slander people and destroy reputations and characters and to steal and just to live completely for self? And they never go back and fix anything they've done wrong. Think of all the stuff that's piled up in their life. And then suddenly, they encounter the holy fire of God. Can you imagine the pain? When they feel each wrong the way you feel it when you've done something wrong. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how painful that would be? I think of David. I think deep down he knew he was wrong when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed and even though in his mind I think he thought he, he thought of some loopholes in the in the Torah that would allow him to do those things, he knew deep down he was wrong. But when Nathan the prophet came to him and says, "You're the man, you're the man who's done these things." David had agony. he was in agony over those two things he had done. Think of someone who has a lifetime of that. The agony that they feel. What's the purpose of the agony? To cleanse, to purify. Water for the body, fire for the soul. In fact, uh, what does it say there? It talks about brimstone. (laughs) That sounds ominous. It means sulfur. So it's a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Now, what can you say about sulfur? There's only one thing I know about sulfur. It stinks to high heaven, literally. And if you've ever smelled rotten eggs, that's the sulfur. When they rot, the sulfur's released. That's what it smells like. Now, here's what's interesting. When you put sulfur on the fire, it stinks. It's horrible. You scrunch up your face and run away. Oh, get me out of here. You hold your nose. Ah, this is horrible. But what happens when you put incense on the fire? Oh, it's wonderful. What happens when you put a sacrifice on the fire? God says it's a reek It's a sweet aroma in his nostrils. A life that's devoted to God is that reek It's that aroma to God because you've put your life on the holy fire so it can go to God. Your prayers... I like the aroma of incense you put on the fire. You take time and you put that time on the altar because it's time spent with God, not earning an extra buck or playing ball or shopping or whatever. It's time spent, his presence. And what a beautiful fragrance that is. But a selfish life, a life lived all for your own sake, get that out of here, Sulfur. Get the idea. The reason for the sulfur he mentioned is because of the stench. Because the bad stuff is being burned up. And you know, it's interesting. When I, I asked, uh, when do you smell sulfur? I heard several of you say rotten eggs. And that's the only time I've ever smelt sulfur, really. well, Sometimes it comes up in well water. But rotten eggs. Think about that. What's an egg? Why did they got ordained that eggs, they turn rotten, they smell like hell? I mean, I mean that scripturally. why why eggs because an egg is potential it's food to give life it's a potential life it can turn into another bird right and potential that is wasted is brimstone you get another picture of what god's discipline and punishment is yeah right makes sense And then it says, then in verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride. Now, at this point, we're going to really focus on the bride, upon the city. And I have to, a little footnote you might want to put in your Bible. If you go back to chapter 17, verse 1, Revelation 17, 1, we see the same angel. And it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So in 17, he's saying, come here. I have a woman I want you to see. Then here in chapter 21, he says, okay, now come here. Here's another woman I want you to see. So you have the great harlot, which has given herself to everything except to God. And here you find a bride who's kept herself only for God. What a difference. 17... And 21, what a difference. These two women could not be more different. And so he says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, the wife of the lamb. This is the bride of Christ as, the, as uh, you will hear in churches, the bride of Messiah. And he carried me away, in verse 10, in the spirit to a great and high mountain, And showed me the bride. Is that what it says? What does it say? The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again, physical, spiritual. You have the city, but it's a bride. It's a city that is completely filled with people who have connected to him. Their living stones have been built up into a house devoted to him. They have become collectively God's house, God's temple. Living stones. Verse 11, Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Interesting is jasper is usually a blood red color. And when you... um, when you first find jasper in the Bible, it's describing the 12 stones on the Khoshan, the breastplate that the high priest wears. And jasper is the very last one. It's number 12. It's in the bottom row clear at the end. The 12th one. I don't know what's significant about that, but I thought it was interesting. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes, of the sons of Israel. So here's a gate. I'm sure that the ones on the the wall of the New Jerusalem look a lot better, but the gates are named after who? There are 12 gates. You'll see there's three on the east, on the west, on the north and south. And whose names are on the gates? The tribes of Israel. So somewhere above the gate will be the name. I'll just take Judah. Okay, let's say this gate is named Judah. And the next one to it might be Reuben and Simeon and Levi and right on around There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. So you have these 12 foundation stones going up, courses of stone. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you would have, you know, John, and you would have... uh, uh, Bartholomew, I'll just put Bart there. Bart, don't think Bart Simpson. Bartholomew, and uh, and just go right on up. And Peter, of course, would be there. He might be on the the bottom. Might be the foundation one. But uh, you got the twelve apostles. So the courses of stone were named after the apostles, but the gates are named after the tribes of Israel. Twelve doors, twelve courses of stone. Does that seem backwards to you? Don't we usually think of Israel and the Torah and that as being the wall I can't get through? Ah, but here come the apostles of the gospel. Now I've got a door. Right? Isn't that kind of how you think? Doesn't it seem backwards? Here the apostles are the wall and the tribes of Israel are the doors. I think God puts them this way because he wants to teach us a valuable lesson. A door without a wall is just plain stupid. And a wall without a door is equally as stupid. (laughs) Because walls are no good unless you can get through them. And doors are no good unless they're an opening to something that's normally blocked. You have to have one to have the other. And what he's saying is, you can't take Israel... Can't take the tour. You can't take my history, my walk with my people, my covenants with them, and separate them from the apostles. What I've done through the renewed covenant—it's a package deal. It's a package deal. Got it? You can't separate them. You remove the wall from the door. What's the door good for? We move the door from the wall. What's the wall good for? You have to have them both. Remember, in Revelation, it tells us in the future, they will sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. It's a duet, the song of Moses and the Lamb. You have to have them both together. And then it goes on and says, uh, 12 apostles of the Lamb, verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with a rod. Now, my New American says 1,500 miles, 1,500 miles. Which would be how far? From here to where? Would that get you to California? Not quite. Pretty close. Somewhere Midwest, Colorado. Let me say Colorado. Mississippi, oh, Mississippi River's not that far. Mississippi, Mississippi River's about 1,500 miles long, though. 12, 14, somewhere there. It keeps changing. I, I'm, okay, here's a total rabbi trail. It has nothing to do with anything. I'm uh, going through the book, Life on the Mississippi, by Mark Twain. I tried to read it as a kid. It was too dull, but now as an adult, I'm really enjoying it. And he was a riverboat pilot, which was an incredibly responsible job, job, a, a, a tough job. And he had to memorize every single bend and broken tree and reef and everything in the entire 12 to 1,400-mile river. The thing is, the river kept changing length. The red river kept changing length, because a bank would wear out and make a new channel, and the river would get shorter. Sometimes silt would build up enough to where they had to add another 40 or 50 miles to it to get around it. It was constantly changing. Every time you went down one way, you talked to the riverboat captains uh, that were going up and tell them everything that had changed in the river. And then the ones who came upstream, they would tell the ones getting ready to go down, these are the changes that have taken place. And they had every bend. They had every reef, they had them all numbered in their minds. Can you imagine that? Every single detail for well over a thousand. Anyways, that's, that's the rabbi trail. Back to business, okay? Great book. So 1,500 miles. But in the Greek, what it is, is 12,000 stadia. 12,000 stadia. And the city is a cube because it says its length and width and height are equal. It's a perfect cube. 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia wide, 12,000 stadia wide. So think of the Mississippi River on end. This is one big city. You say, well, this can't be true then. The earth isn't big enough to support that big of a city. And not only that, this is on top of a mountain. Well, guess what? This new earth is a whole lot bigger than the present one. A whole lot bigger. Now, how long is a stadia? A stadia is about 600 yards. Length of two football fields. Okay? Length of two football fields. Wait a minute. I meant to say 600 feet. Sorry, not 600, yards. Yeah, 600 feet. Two football fields, yeah. I never was good at measurement. But anyway, six, 600 feet, two football fields in length. And I started playing around. I thought, well, you know what? What if, uh, what if each person in this New Jerusalem gets a, a cubic stadia? I get a section in the New Jerusalem that's 600 feet this way, two football fields that way. Two football fields that way, two football fields that way. I mean, you could put a big house in there. That's a lot of property. And I started figuring out just how many cubic stadia this thing would have. And it turns out it would have 1,728,000,000,000 cubic stadia. So then I got curious. I thought, well, how many people have lived ever lived on this earth. And believe it or not, they have statistics. They say during the entire course of human history, 105.2 billion people have lived. There are about 7.4 billion people alive today. So in all, all the human beings, Madam and Eve, according to these calculations, 115.6 billion people. So I did the math and found out that if each person gets an equal amount of, of space in this New Jerusalem each person gets about 15,000 cubic stadia each. This is one big city. And that's if everybody has, and we know as we read on, not everybody gets space in this city. But if every human being from Adam and Eve to today did get equal space in this city, you'd have 15,000 cubic stadia per person. That just blows my mind. Is anything too big for God? So. So we see the New Jerusalem. Whoops. We see the New Jerusalem here as a cube. But there's another cube you find back in the Torah, and that is the Holy of Holies. Now that should give us a big hint. Because basically the New Jerusalem is a Holy of Holies. Who went into the Holy of Holies? Who was always there and who would go in there? God's kind of glory was already there. Remember we talked earlier about the glory of God? The city was filled with the glory of God. And then the high priest would go in once a year on Yom Kippur. So there's room for two. God and the high priest in this cube. Here we see God and his bride in a cube. Because this is the Holy of Holies on steroids here. So the Holy of Holies was in the tabernacle way back thousands of years ago. And uh, and then at the temple, Solomon's temple after that. And then we see in the future, there's this new Jerusalem, this new Holy of Holies. But there's another Holy of Holies in the world right now. What would that be? Salt. Salt crystals are always shaped like a cube. You know, in nature... You find a lot of a lot of circles and, and spheres. The cubes, they're rare as hens teeth. You just don't find cubes. Crystals pretty much or salt's pretty much the only one. But what did Jesus say? He said, You're the salt of the earth. Each of you is a little holy of holies, and I'm dwelling inside of you. Isn't that amazing? So, anyways. Holy of Holies in the past, salt crystals now, but the new Jerusalem in the future. What a a God we have. Just amazing. And he measured its wall, verse 17, 72 yards according to human measurement. Pretty puny wall compared to the city. But the wall is pretty much there as just a symbol, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And we'll see that that description here a little bit later. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every precious, kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second a sapphire. Third chalcedony. The fourth emerald. The fifth sardonyx. The sixth sardius. The seventh chrysolite. The eighth beryl. The ninth topaz. The tenth Chrysus brace. I have no idea what that is. The eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. So each gate was a pearl. I don't know how each gate's a pearl. Pearls are usually a sphere, but these pearls are gates. Well, you know, as uh, Robin and I have been discussing, and studying the woman of valor in Proverbs 31, it says, the very first verse, an ishet kyle, a woman of valor who can find. Far more than purers, pearls is her value. She's worth more than pearls, Benignum. More worth, worth more than than, uh, than pearls. And you know, a husband will often adorn his wife with pearls because pearls are something come from the hidden realm, down the bottom of the sea. They're created by an irritant in this unclean animal, an oyster. And a piece of sand or grit or something gets in there, and it starts building up these 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 uh, layers of calcium around them, and and the longer it goes, the bigger the pearl gets, and very few pearls are perfect, but a perfect pearl, the pearl of great price, formed in the dark in an unclean animal by an irritant, but when it's brought into the light, the merchant, he sells everything he has to purchase that pearl. So here we see the new Jerusalem adorned with pearls, you think like a woman's neck adorned with pearls that her husband has purchased for her. It's an amazing image. It really is. With time's running out. So let's move on. And each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Here again we see the spiritual and the physical. Because gold in the scriptures is described as faith. 1 Peter 1, 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Messiah Yeshua. So we walk by faith, right? We walk by faith, not by sight. Second Corinthians 5, 7. So we walk by faith. When you're in a city, what do you walk on? You walk on the road, the cobblestones in this case. What are the cobblestones made out of? Absolutely, totally pure gold. In other words, your walk of faith and the cobblestones are the same thing. The spiritual and the physical are one. But the cobblestones are transparent like glass. Because we walk by faith, not by sight in this world, but in that world, faith and sight are one. I walk in faith, but I can see right through it. It doesn't block anything. I can see and walk in faith. I can have my cake and eat it. And also... Metallurgists tell us that when gold is completely, totally pure, which is impossible pretty much for us to do here, when gold is completely pure, light will pass through it. That's bizarre to me. But who knows? And then we go on, and the city had no need. Oh, verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the temple is a place where people go to God's house. To commune with Him, so God and the Lamb are the temple, and we are there with them. What did, what did David write in Psalm twenty-seven? No one thing I've, I've requested, one thing I desire, I've longed for, Lord, to dwell in Your temple, in Your house, forever. Well, that that prayer, that desire, will come true for all of us. And the city, verse 23, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine. Now, there will be a sun and moon, but you don't need them for light. They're there for adornment, I think. For the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the lamp. Light is something we can see. It's something tangible. The glory of God is something that's not. The Bible says the whole world's filled with glory, but it's hard to see. I can't see it, but I have to trust the word that it's here. I can see light, I can't see his glory because it's spiritual. But here, his glory, spiritual, is the light, the physical light of the city. Again, spiritual, physical, or one. And then it goes on, verse 24. And we're beginning to talk about the nations now. We've talked about the bride, the new Jerusalem. Let's talk about the people who are not part of the bride. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city, into it. Where did these people come from? These are the ones who had to spend time in the fire. They did not live for God here. So the fire of God will bring purity to their lives. They'll repent. This is not a second chance. People say, you believe in a second chance? Grant? No, I don't believe there's any chance at all in God's salvation. I believe Yeshua came to seek and to save that which is lost. I believe he succeeds. Period. God is God because his will is always done. The scriptures tell us that. And it says he's not willing that any should perish. So if anyone perishes for eternity, then God's will is not done and he's not God. God is good. Recently, I've had people do this. They say, you believe even Hitler? Hitler could be restored as awful as he was. And I, I would have to tell them, I said, well, if the God you believe in is the real God, then he was Hitler's mentor. Hitler was simply doing God's word, will. Because what Hitler did is nothing compared to what your God does by taking the vast majority of humanity and consigning them to eternal, conscious torment, unending I also told somebody, I said, well, if you, what you believe is true, I said, you should restart the Inquisition. Better to torch people a little bit here to get them saved than to let them just go to hell for all of eternity. The Inquisitors in the Catholic Church had it right. That was an act of mercy. If that's the kind of God that really exists. Makes sense? Anyways. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth, not the church, not the bride, but the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, where did they come from? How did they get there? We'll we'll see in a moment. In the daytime, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. Gates are closed at night, open in day. Here it's always day, so gates are never closed. They're never closed to people who want to come in to pay homage to the king and his bride. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the book, Lamb's Book of Life. Then he showed me a river, chapter 22, 1, a river of the water of life. Now, what's the river of the water of life? This is the Holy Spirit. And yet here it's liquid. Again, physical, spiritual, become one. Clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for what? The healing of the bride? No, the healing of the nations. The nations get healed. You now, in Daniel 7, there's this incredible vision Daniel has of the Ancient of Days. It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. After all, fire is always God's holy, purifying presence. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. A river of fire. Now you know where the lake of fire comes from. But what do we read here? Here in 22.1... We also see God's throne again. says, so then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. How did the river change? I have news for you. It didn't. And Daniel, Daniel saw it as fire, but here we see it as water. It's the same thing. It cleanses. But water does something that fire never can. You can't eat fire, but you can drink water. And God wants to nourish and bring healing to people. That's who God is. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Who is the one individual we see through, uh, through Israel's history who had God's name on his forehead? The high priest. Here, everybody's got God's name on their forehead. "'Kadoshle Adonai, holy unto the Lord, "'because we're a kingdom of priests. "'And there will no longer be any night. they will not have, not have any need of the light of a lamp "'or the light of the sun, "'because the Lord God will illumine them, "'and they will reign forever and ever. "'And he said to me, "'These words are faithful and true, "'and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, "'sent his angel to show to his bondservants "'the things which must soon take place.'" behold i am coming quickly blessed to see who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book and then at that point john is back on the island of patmos and he's addressing the readers and saying look folks this is the future you want to be one of the wise virgins or one of the foolish you want to be prepared or be taken by surprise you want to invest in his kingdom now and make your life a sweet aroma to him or you invest in yourself instead and you smell like rotten eggs what do you want it to be? And that's the appeal he makes to the people. I'm just going to close with two quotes, two of my favorite quotes. I'll do the, the Elizabeth Barrett Browning one first. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. You know, I read that the earth is filled with his glory, and my constant prayers, Lord, help me to see it, help me to be aware of it. And the more I pray that, the more it's coming true. I become aware of God's glory when I look at one of these little kids who come up to be dedicated and stand under the hoopah. I see it when I see someone forgiving their neighbor. And when I, I see someone doing a kind deed, an act of generosity, I just see God's glory everywhere. When I look at nature, even in the fallen world, it's quite beautiful. You get alone and you just feel the wind. You realize this is a picture of God's Spirit. You see the sun. You see the moon shining through the sukkah on the first night of, of Sukkot. You just see God's glory everywhere. It says, Lord, help me to see. I'll take off my shoes. I'll realize I'm on holy ground. And this by C.S. Lewis. He says, Earth, I think, will not be found by anyone in the end a very distinct place. I think Earth, if chosen instead of heaven will turn out to have been all along only a religion a region in hell. And Earth, if put second to heaven, to have been from the beginning a part of heaven itself. There could be two people sitting next to each other in the pew. And one of you right now is experiencing heaven. Because you're in a world, you've chosen to live there, you've chosen to be part of God's kingdom, to serve him, to love him. And the person sitting next to you could be experiencing hell. They're filled with shame, full of embarrassment, full of bitterness, full of just self. Your bodies are both here, but what you're experiencing the complete opposites. It's like someone being forced to sit through a, I forget who I was talking to, I think it might have been Tim, sit, sit through a, a Mozart symphony. And the person who has an ear for music He's, he's completely trans, uh, trans, what's the word? Uh, trans something. I need mean, to be careful, I use trans, but he's transported. He's transported. I mean, he's like, oh, this is like coming from the angels. But a person who only listens to rap, he's listened to it and he's in hell. It's like, oh, when's this torture going to stop? You know what I mean? Same music, but two completely polar experiences. And that's the way it could be in life with almost everything you go through. So where's your heart? That will determine how you experience every moment of this world. So, well, with that, we've gone way over time. I promise you we would. And uh, so we're going to close in prayer. Next week, we'll resume questions, okay? Our Father and King, thank you so much for the amazing, incredible words. Lord, if you'd told us more than this, it would be... T- just too hard to believe. But Father, we're going to stretch our imaginations and our faith to embrace the truth that you have written for us, that the best is yet to come. So may we be like Yeshua, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and uh, he lived according to the light of this new city. We're told in Hebrews about Abraham who is looking for this city, this city not made with hands. So Father, may we walk through this life towards this city, towards this eternal home, when your heavens, your kingdom, come to earth to stay. Lord, what a wonderful future you have for us. Help us to live by its light. And may we live our lives fully fully devoted to you. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.